and welcome to the Midlife Manifesto podcast. I'm Leslie Ellis and this is the show where through the stories of my wonderful friends, we celebrate and commiserate, we share the ups and the downs and the challenges and opportunities that midlife brings. Now today on the show, we have the fabulous Joe O'Hara. Now, Jo is kicking the traditional view of what middle age should look like. And so I'm really happy to have her on the show. Hello, Jo. Hi, everyone. Hi, Leslie. <laughs> I'm so pleased you agreed to come on. When I put that request out for people to come on my podcast, mm -hmm. and there's certain people that I wanted to say, me, I'll come on it. <laughs> and, um, you know, about five of the people I wanted to come on it, said yes and you're one of them so I'm really pleased Brilliant. about that so I thought we better just start by talking about how we know each other really yeah absolutely well I think it's quite a while we've known each other now but we don't see each other that frequently do we but it was via friends that we came into contact um one yep. friend in particular um and I suppose we just really kept contact via Facebook and seeing what each other's up to yeah, I think Facebook's a brilliant tool for that because you never lose touch with your friends anymore, do you? No, absolutely not. You know where you can find them <laughs> if you need them, which is brilliant. You do, you do, absolutely. So, Joe, let's start your story because we start here in, you're in your mid-40s. You work in, you've got a really good career yes. in insurance. Yeah, that's right. So what happened next? Okay, so what happened next was um, for a while I'd kind of been... Um, feeling that I wasn't doing anything really significant. Um, I remember having a conversation with a friend who worked in the same job and we were saying, yeah, we enjoyed it, but it's not like we were saving lives or anything. Um, so tootling along just fine. And then I, um, I applied for another job and I was turned down because I didn't have a degree. I had over 20 years experience of doing that job, but I didn't have a degree. And I knew I was capable of doing a degree. So that's what I decided to do was to go out, get a degree. But on that journey, my husband said, well, you need to do something that you really enjoy. So find what you love. What so, a great husband. I know, really supportive. <laughs> it was amazing. So I started off, I had to do an access course um, because I'd not done A-levels. Mm -hmm. I'd gone to college after school. I'd trained as a beauty therapist. So I um, did an access course. And during that access course, I actually started to volunteer for a, a youth offending team. And while I was doing that volunteering, I realised that actually I wanted to work with people and people that were less fortunate than me. So I actually uh, went to college, uh, went to university, started to do sociology and psychology. Uh -huh. and all I think, well, we, I were doing psychology through the Open University and I seem to remember that we had a discussion on Facebook at the time. Yes, About probably. that. Yeah. You posted something about restorative justice. Yes. And I'd just come across restorative justice through my job that I was doing at the time right. and the whole I think it was um, the lady that had written a book on it and the whole concept of um, restorative justice just blew my mind it was like exactly what what I think it, you know restoring situations and relationships should yeah. be about I just absolutely. it's just popped into my head that yeah yeah at the same time restorative justice is absolutely brilliant because our criminal process it doesn't allow the victim to have the voice beyond the initial incident the victim's very rarely involved and actually as humans it's really important that we have a voice and we are heard 
And that's what restorative justice allows us to do. And it helps to repair the damage by saying how it made you feel and what you need to happen for you to build feel better about it and come to terms with whatever it is that's occurred but and it's can... not just the it's not just the victim that really benefits no, is it you it's know not... i think the the perpetrator when confronted with the emotion and the damage that they've caused it can often be revelatory for them absolutely if you think about it a lot of um, perpetrators will feel shame and guilt and it actually helps them to reconcile themselves with what's happened mm. and it's not just in criminal situations either you can use it in um, with children children really respond to it because we often say to a child when they've done something why did you do that we very rarely know why we've done something <laughs> yeah. we just don't know. know do we know. all we know about is how we were feeling and what we were thinking. So it's better to kind of ask those questions first to a child. What were you thinking about before? What do you feel about it now? How could you have done things better? And it's perfect for children as well. It's just a really nice um, kind of way of resolving conflict and, and situations. Mm, yeah, absolutely. We've diversified a bit here, know, haven't we? Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Um, so... <clears throat> So you went to work with young offenders. You went mm. volunteering with young offenders. Yeah, part of that was doing the restorative justice, but also I um, I volunteered several evenings a week and I used to act as an appropriate adult for when young people were arrested and taken into custody. Mm -hmm. um, so I was often down at the police station late at night um, and it was about sitting in interviews, making sure the police treated the young person fairly and just providing support, really. Yeah. So what... So you you you're there doing your psychology and your um, sociology degree. Yes. You go and volunteer in a young offenders institute. What yeah. happened then? Then I I started looking at um, career options and realised that actually I'd need to go on and do an MA if I wanted to do something meaningful. So for for me that was social work that I needed to do. If I was going to have the same level of involvement, it was really a social work degree that I needed. So I actually changed degrees after a year, which meant that I was at university for four years in total. Right. But it was absolutely worth it. Was it? Completely worth it. And actually the sociology and the psychology was a really good grounding because that's what social work's about. It's about how people think and the society that we live in. So it was absolutely brilliant. Loved perfect, it. perfect. So, I mean... There's a common theme here because I don't know what you think about this, but more and more women our age are doing these things. They're Absolutely. rewriting the narrative. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think? Why do you think it is? Why are we doing these things? I think it's because people realise now, and women in particular, that they shouldn't be sort of constrained by stereotypes of being a mother, a housewife, and realise that actually we've got multiple identities. That's what it's about. It's all about your identity, and actually. You can change, you can change who you are and what you do without, you know, without putting other identities in jeopardy, if you like. So you can still be a mother and a social worker. You can still be a, a wife and do the things that you enjoy and that actually give meaning to your life. And that's really important, I think, to women today. That is interesting. I think it's almost like middle age is almost like a re it's a, a time for reflection maybe people reflect more maybe it's you know they're reflecting back on what they've done so far and it, it stops them in the tracks and makes them reconsider what they're going to do next i think maybe i wondered whether it's because our age our children are less dependent on us so our role as mothers is not as 
all-encompassing in a physical sense, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we kind of we realise now that we have choices. And as you say, I think that actually having children changes your thinking as well about what's important to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and suddenly it's not all about the material things. It's about how lucky you feel if your child doesn't have any issues and about if they have all the things that they need, realising that other children perhaps don't do that and realising that, you know, people have different lived experiences and that's what shapes them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's it's fascinating. It's yeah. I'm seeing this more and more. I think what you said about choices is is really key mm-hmm. because we've not always been in this position no. as middle aged women. No. You know, even even thirty years ago, as a middle aged woman, when you're getting in your forties, you're looking at menopause and a slow decline into <laughs> old age, are you pretty much? <laughs> yes, you are. It's kind of and it's kind of seen as um it's a dreadful time is the menopause and actually it's it's a time of rebirth almost. It's new uh, beginnings. I'll tell you what, I'll take your word for it because <laughs> at the moment I'm not big on that. No. <laughs> so so Joe, so what happened next then? So you went and did your your, your social worker degree. Yeah. You I, qualified. Uh-huh. And I was yeah. I, I was really proud of myself because I got a first. Wow. Yeah. I really worked hard. That was kind of like a personal thing that I told myself. I thought I'm going to go for this. If I'm doing it, I'm doing it 100%. And I got my first, which was absolutely amazing. Amazing, absolutely. And two days before I graduated, I actually had to have um, a biopsy. I'd been for a mammogram and they'd found some lumps. So two days before the graduation ceremony, I went for a biopsy. And then the week after graduation, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So that was from being on an amazing high... It was a bit of a deflating moment, to say uh, the least. That's a bit of an understatement. Oh, yeah. my God, sure. So how had you had you got any plans? So you, you'd, you'd graduated. Mm-hmm. Had you got any plans before you got the diagnosis? Yes, what? I had. I'd, um, I'd actually applied to the council that I did the placement when I was doing social work in. So I'd done a placement with young carers. Um, and I'd applied to that council and I had a job lined up um, in child protection social work. So I was all ready to start that process, start working for the council. When I got the diagnosis and actually rather, I don't know, it's probably my reaction, but my reaction was, oh no, I'm just about to start this job. How bloody so inconvenient. Yeah. <laughs> I'd worked really, really hard and I wanted oh. to use what I'd learned and suddenly... This breast cancer diagnosis was presented to me. And and really, I suppose it didn't come as a huge shock because members of my family had had breast cancer. My own mother died of breast cancer and I'd had mammograms for five years before. So I was kind of... I, I, it was always in the back of my mind that it was a, a, a big possibility that I would end up with breast cancer. But it was always proactive about it. So when I got the diagnosis, it wasn't a huge shock, really. It was just... I don't want this now. I want to get on with my life. I've got a plan. My plan is to do child protection social work. So um, when the um, doctor gave me the diagnosis and I was sat listening, I didn't cry or anything. I was just taking it in and processing it. And she actually turned to my husband and said, you know, she's got breast cancer. And my husband said, she knows. She knows that she's got breast cancer. But this is this is her way of dealing with it. And she's processing it. And that's that's what I did. I had about 10 minutes of crying after she'd left the room. And then I thought, right, this is the cards I've been dealt. 
just get on with it. Don't let it stop me. Wow. <laughs> That's just me. I'm quite bloody minded. And I thought, right, well, just crack on and, and let's deal with it. So you kind of dealt with breast cancer, like, like say, I would deal with the flu. I suppose I did, really. And that sounds... I, I realise that not everybody can do that. And it's not everybody who's, I suppose, had the experiences that I have, um, that I've had. Um, I've had diabetes since I was nine years old and I've had complications associated with that. I've had setbacks in terms of I had... Um, I had a period of illness where I was off work for three months and was then made redundant, which was clearly disability discrimination. And mm-hmm. I took that to, I, t- I took legal action on that and I won the case. And I just thought, you know, yeah, I have these challenges, but actually it's how, how I deal with those challenges that I just keep going. And I don't know what makes me have that strength or that tenacity, but I suspect it might be just be bloody mindedness, to be honest. <laughs> Just think, I'm not going to let it beat me. I'm going to keep going. Well, all hail bloody mindedness. <laughs> Good lord. So, so you 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 got your diagnosis. Mm-hmm. How 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 did that um, change what you did next? Well, it meant that I had to put the job on hold. Um, and at the, uh, initially, we weren't sure if it meant that I would need chemotherapy. We knew I'd need a mastectomy, but not about the treatment afterwards. So I spoke to the person who'd interviewed me and said, you know, I might be a bit delayed um, and was apologising for actually delaying oh, it. And she, sure. she sort of said to me, you know, you, you don't need to apologise. You know, I'm just feeling for you. So we agreed that I would just keep in touch with her, tell her what was happening. So I then obviously had to have a consultation with a surgeon, which was quite interesting because they were proposing a course of treatment that I didn't want to have. So I wanted, to, I knew straight away I wanted a reconstruction. I felt that it was it was part of my identity and part of being me that I had a reconstruction. Mm-hmm. So it was never in doubt. But the form that they suggested was a, a very cautious form. So it would have meant going back to hospital, having an expander put in, and then perhaps doing the reconstruction a, a year down the line. And that for me wasn't right. I was raring to go. I didn't want to be held back by hospital appointments. I just wanted to get stuck It's like, in. just give me my boob yeah. back and let me get exactly. on. Exactly, give me it and we'll go. So um, I remember having a conversation with a surgeon and saying to her, that's not an option for me. I've researched it. This is the type of treatment that I want. I want an immediate reconstruction. And because of the diabetes, they were really nervous. They said, well, you know, healing's not so good in diabetics and blah, blah, blah. Is it type but 1? Type 1, yeah. Right. Type 1 diabetes. But I'm really well controlled. I have an insulin pump and sort of knew that my healing was really good. I was quite healthy in other regards. So I pushed for the option I wanted. They did it. It was amazing success. Um, I think about six months after that, I had a nipple reconstruction as well, which meant taking some of um, the good nipple, putting it on the, the reconstruct, reconstructed breast. And that all took fine. And I could... I could actually now wear a t-shirt without a brown. You would not you be able know. to. You wouldn't be able to tell. No. If I wore a t-shirt without a brown, my nipples would be sticking out the bottom of my t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing middle ages done to me. <laughs> well, luckily I'm quite quite small, so I was uh, yeah. So it's it, it's such a it, it's a good reconstruction. I feel myself. 
I felt fabulous after when I actually, you know, put that T-shirt on and thought, yeah, I, I look like me. I it's totally cool. imagine. Yeah. I admire your tenacity and strength. I think next time I go for a doctor's appointment, will you come with me? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I need I need Joe O'Hara. It's <laughs> just about asking loads of questions, I think, and just about being clear in your mind what you want to achieve. Yeah. And, and kind of sticking to that while at the same time considering what the medical people are telling you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, did did you go, did you get that job? Did that, did yes, that pan out? Yes, I got the job. Um, in fact, I started two months almost to the day that I had the um, surgery. So, wow. downtime was two months. And during those two months, I did, uh, you know, I just looked after myself. Um, part of the hardest thing was telling my daughter about the cancer because she, um, she was due to start high school and she was due to start on the Monday as I came out of hospital on the Friday so obviously it's a delicate time for teenagers anyway it is yeah it's a really difficult time and I just didn't want um my health to impact on how she did at school Mm. so we we talked about um the cancer I was quite open with her she'd obviously picked up that something was wrong and I remember sitting down and saying to me you've got cancer you're going to die and crying and me um because I'd worked with young carers, with children whose parents might have a life-limiting disease or disorder, I could sit and talk to her and be really open and say, we don't know what's going to happen. We know that I've got really good doctors and surgeons and we know that your mum's quite a strong person, so we'll go through this together. And it might mean some tough times or it might mean that I bounce back, but we'll do it together. So that was kind of dealt with. And then, as I say, I started the job two months after the surgery on a child protection team full time which as you can imagine is quite full on and quite <laughs> quite draining <laughs> I don't even have to imagine <laughs> but I think that's kind of kept oh, me going as well because it allowed me to to not focus on on me um, and the issues that I'd had it was about people who were going through difficult times of their own and helping them and I think that kind of took my mind off it if you like I had something else to focus on so did you need any treatment after you'd had the mastectomy? All I need is um, tamoxifen, so I take that once a day. Right. Nothing else, no chemotherapy, no radiation treatment, nothing like that. Just so that, that's actually fantastic, isn't it? It that is, you yeah. Didn't have... And I think that's because of the early mammograms is that, you know, I, I went for them religiously. Uh, I checked my breasts as well. Um, and that early treatment really made a difference, I think. The early mammograms, mm-hmm. um, I know we're, di- we're going sort of diverting a bit here, but did you did you initiate that or did your yes. GP initiate it? I initiated that because I was aware that my mum had, um, she had breast cancer twice. Um, she eventually died of breast cancer. But I was also aware that I have quite a large family and other aunties had had breast cancer as well. So I, um, and it's a long time ago that this started, but I, I went to my GP and said, you know, there's this family history, I would like to have early mammograms. And then I think it had to go through the genetic centre in Leeds. Um, and of course, now there's this thing about actually mammograms can, can make that situation worse rather than just identifying that can actually cause cancer. So it was then weighing up, do I want to do this or don't? And I just felt that, for me, I would rather go every year and check. And I'm so glad that I did. Absolutely. Yeah. So for somebody who um, is perfectly healthy, younger than the mammogram, is it 40? 
I think it's 50 when you start your mammograms, I believe. Is it? Because I don't yes. think I've had one, so maybe it is. Yeah, yeah I think um, it's 50. I don't know why I touched my boobs when I said that. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> give me a little rub just to yeah. check. The They're all right. <laughs> <I'm doing. laughs> um, so would you, would you recommend that somebody who is currently perfectly healthy but mm-hmm. whose family have a history of breast cancer I sort of be a bit more yeah. assertive? I I think so. I think it's worth having that conversation. I think it's worth doing your own research, obviously using reliable sites. Mm -hmm. um, But it's worth considering, you know, do you need to have those mammograms early? Have a conversation with your GP. Know your facts. Don't be fobbed off. Ask lots of questions and be quite yeah assertive mm-hmm. i think in your case it could it could be the thing that has saved your life absolutely yeah it could and that and the sheer bloody mindedness yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah stubbornness <laughs> yeah Stub- I know. stubbornness is a totally positive trait it is in me yeah <laughs> i love it <laughs> in child protection yes so i mean that is a that is a job and a half it is yeah. i have dipped my toe in in child protection yeah. in a previous role but what kind of things as a child protection officer do you get involved in lots of different things really i mean um families are under increasing pressure um things like because it's it's called child protection, but really, in effect, you're working with a whole family mm-hmm. and it's finding help for for everyone in that family. So it might be in relation to substance misuse. It may be mental health issues, domestic violence. It may be a combination of the three, uh, which in, in social work we call the toxic trio because the impacts of three together is massive. And as you can imagine, a lot of people with mental health will try and self-medicate using substances. So it's a real sort of complex situation. And I work with all ages of children as well, um, babies right up to being 18 years old. So it's a real mixed bag. And it's challenging, but it's absolutely rewarding. But the rewards that you get are so small And it might just be a child saying thank you or wanting you there at the birthday or whatever. But those to a a social worker are massive. Mm. It's really it really is the small, small things. Mm -hmm. It's knowing that you might be the one safe person in their life. Absolutely. And feeling privileged when these children do share with you what they're worried about, what's happening for them, Mm. what they need. That's that's such a privilege. It's it's amazing. it's amazing and in difficult families they've not always had much practice at sharing their no, feelings right. and their fears have they that's right and i think that you know there is cycles that go on that we repeat the patterns of our families and actually it's a, it's about giving families the support to break those cycles to recognize that you know there might be one child who always seems to be the problem child who um the 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 rest of the family members blame things on and allowing them to actually see that that's that's not the case it's not that one child's fault or responsibility and it's just looking at alternatives and ways that they can break out of those patterns because we all have family scripts 
that we adhere to. There's always the one that's, oh, she's always mouthy or she's always difficult. And then there's the one who's the nurturing. We all have those roles that we play in a family. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those roles are not good roles. They're, they're dysfunctional and they need to change. And it's allowing people and supporting people to, to put those changes into place, really. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So it what you're doing, it's so essential what you're doing. But it's also, it must, it must be traumatic at times. You must be dealing with some really traumatic or traumatised children yeah. and traumatic incidents. Yeah. yeah. How do you, how do you work around that? How do you deal with it? I think we all find there's different coping mechanisms and it's, you know, it's finding a healthy way of coping with those pressures and those stresses because, yeah, it is heartbreaking. The first time a child discloses to you that something terrible's happened, you know, you want to cry with them. Mm. But really, you're not helping that child if you cry too. Although sometimes you can cry with people and they see that as you actually understand and that you're connecting with them. Mm -hmm. So I guess every situation's different. But I think it's really important as well to realise that you cannot change everything. As much as you want, as, what, as much as you want your magic wand, and every social worker has a magic wand, <laughs> you can't do it. So you have to accept that you can only do what you can do. And I think the other part of it is, is compartmentalising as well to some extent. You have to leave at work some of your cases. Now, that's easier said than done, because yeah. we all have ones where you wake up in the middle of the night and you think, oh, but... If you can leave it and then have a different kind of outlook at home, that's really helpful. And I think it makes us all kind of hold our loved ones a little bit closer because we think about how lucky we are that we, we're in a different situation, a different place in our lives, and that's priceless. That's a really important part of it. And it could be, you know, yeah, we probably have a glass of wine now and again, or it might be I like to sit and colour with my daughter so we get a colouring book out and mm. felt tips and just colour and chat as we go along and, and share things and it's all about communicating and talking to each other. Um, the reason I'm so fascinated with this Joy is because we were talking the other day on the phone weren't we and I dipped my toe yeah. into this whole kind of, um, sort of child protection area in a job that I had in a school so I'd gone from this bit like you I'd gone from this corporate environment where everybody's reasonably polite with a few exceptions <laughs> uh, to working in a school and I worked with looked after children yeah so by nature of the role the children that I were working with had been through significant trauma Absolutely. in order to be taken away from the families and um, I found that my relationship with those children started to take over everything else yes. and I became so attached to those same children at school so I mean just for a bit of, of background my job was to kind of be the interface between the children the teaching staff social services and the families in some yes. cases and um, I think my job was to my official role my official capacity was to improve their academic outcomes because looked after children generally underperform yes. in education and what I found was I was school mum I became their yeah. school mum and what they needed rather than <laughs> what they needed more than anything is sometimes a cuddle and a hot chocolate yeah. in my little office yeah. away from all the pressures of school and 
um but but those relationships got they became i became so entwined in their lives that in the school holidays for example when i had no contact with them for two weeks or even six weeks Mm -hmm. i spent the whole time worrying sick about them yeah because a lot some of the looked after children were really happily settled in their foster care Mm -hmm. homes but some were they were so um you know there were a lot of of difficulties and um they weren't very secure in their positions Mm -hmm. and i'd be worrying yeah and then think on on the um and also i found my children <laughs> this is it's really weird i'd have uh, for example i had one child and their foster placement had broken down and mm-hmm. she came in that morning with a great big back, black bean liner and oh. she said mrs ellis please can i put my stuff in your office today my social worker's picking me up tonight i don't know where i'm going oh. and obviously i, I I said yes, and I had this bag of stuff. Her whole worldly belongings were in this bloody black bin liner it's in my office. It is absolutely disgraceful. Is. She had no idea. She had to go to lessons and listen and concentrate and behave. And if she yeah. didn't behave, she'd have had consequences. Yeah. And uh, I found that difficult. But also, I'd go home and my 12-year-old daughter... I'd be having a tantrum because I'd only got a one One Direction ticket and not one f- to go with a friend as well. <laughs> and I was like, this is just this is just ridiculous. Yeah. And I, I was looking at my children in a really different light. You were, it were like they, they were just so spoiled and utterly privileged. And in one way, I was relieved that they didn't know what that world is like. Yeah, but in the other way, it just totally, it affected my relationship with my children. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew after three years uh, of doing the role, uh, the weight of that just was so heavy mm. that I just had to step away. Yeah. And I, c- I can understand that. There's so many different things in there. I mean, the black bin bags is just, is terrible. The authority that I work for, we have some lovely like travel bags that we have for children that have been moved mm. that are huge and they're a, a nice pattern and they're just for them, for them to keep because we recognise that actually what does that do to you having to move your worldly possessions in a black bin bag, perhaps away from somewhere you don't want to leave. That's just a tiny, tiny thing that we can do to make that easier for children. Mm. And I think, you know, the fact that the child had to go to lessons, as you said, is um, a massive thing because we put such a such a, an emphasis on academic achievement, which is good for some children. Some children, that's absolutely what they need. For other children, it's just the fact that they've turned up, that she's turned up to school with that black bin bag. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's what, enough. That should be recognised. That I should agree. be, you know, we have families that really struggle and... They don't get the children to school all the time or they don't get them there on time. But when they do get there, celebrate it. Don't beat them up because they've missed other times. Celebrate the fact that today they've had a good day, it's all gone right and they've taken the children to school. That's that's the thing. But that's not what happens. It's not. <laughs> it's not and it's wrong. And that's where social work and, and education and health, we've all got different perspectives and different agendas and that's what makes it difficult sometimes. And really our agenda should be that child's well-being. Absolutely. Everybody. Child, I, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's all about that working together to safeguard children. It's about all agencies working together to look after the well-being. Mm-hmm. 
of that child and trying to make a difference, trying to make it better for them. And it's not to us really to judge what's better for them. You know, we need to listen to the child as well. The child's got a voice. The child needs to have a voice to be able to say this is what's important. And we might not even consider what's important to that child. It might not be on our agenda. That's why we've got to listen to mm -hmm. children and mm -hmm. to what they need. Yeah. And I think the last bit about your own children, yes, you do realise that your own children are quite privileged and you kind of, for me, dealing with that is about asking my daughter to put herself in other children's shoes a little bit. And she does, you know, sometimes she does it, sometimes she doesn't. And I don't kind of sweat the, the small, small stuff. Small stuff, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, and I'm sure you don't either. It's about, yeah, the bedroom's a tip, but... <laughs> Have they done the homework or are they a nice person? They're kind. Teaching children to be kind, massive, massive thing. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. You know, I think um, we we had an incident when, when we were doing Back in Time for Tea. We got some, uh, we had some largely really good um, feedback from yeah. the public. But there was, um, there was a few comments about my children's eating habits or the whole family's eating habits actually <laughs> and i don't i don't deny that that it's a bit like a chimp's tea party in our house yeah. you know table manners are not top of their skills yeah <laughs> but one lady came on and said if they were my children i'd be ashamed <gasps> it's the only feedback that ever stung or only i mean somebody once said that mum from back in time for tea looks like mr blobby i just laughed at that but the bit where they said they'd be ashamed of if oh. if they were their children that really stung and yeah. I, I although we we're advised not to reply whenever somebody put something on <laughs> I'd, i had to reply Did you? good and i put um you know, I, I'm, I'm not denying that the table manners are probably not the best you've ever seen. But in our family, our values are kindness and understanding and caring for others. Yeah. And, and not being mean to people and yeah. pointing out the faults. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I went, you've got your values, we've got ours. I think it's fair to say we're at different ends of the scale. Yeah. And um, but that's it's focusing on what's really important, Absolutely, isn't it? Well, yeah, and I think those are really, really good values to have. And actually, the fact that she said to be ashamed, shame is such a toxic emotion Sh oh. because shame is you are bad as a person. It's not that you've done a bad thing; it's that you are bad as a person, and it's it's so corrosive. And you know, it's I think that's a big thing in today's society. So to say that to you, I think he's. It's just awful. It's just awful. I know. Shame is um, shame is something. I think we were brought up with shame. Yes, we were. I Very was brought so. up with shame. Yeah, you know. Very much so. And uh, I think, I think this new generation we're becoming more aware of it, are we? Thanks to Absolutely. Brené Brown. Yes, <laughs> Brené Brown. Love her. Love her. She's so good. And and yeah, they are. And I think that young people today are far more accepting. Um, of different sexualities, different races, different genders. To them, it's not a big deal. Mm. It's really not a big deal. No, they it's just not. just accept that other young person for who they are. And I think that is where we have come on in leaps and bounds. I absolutely agree. Yeah. I absolutely agree. It's been so nice talking to you. Thank it's you. just been fabulous. You, you've your knowledge and your empathy for children just comes across really strong. That oh that team is bloody lucky to have you on it, Joe. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh my goodness. So, 
what would your advice be to finish off? What would your advice be to anybody considering like a major career change in midlife? Oh my word, do it. Just do it. Just be brave. Take the bull by the horns and go for it. You know, a lot of the time we feel stale and we feel unfulfilled. And what have you got to lose? You know, it's we are now living longer. We are having more career changes. Don't be scared. Don't get comfortable and think this is it. Just do it. If you want to do it, go for it every single time. Great. So you heard Joe, we just gotta go for it. So I always finish my podcast with a fact of the day. Oh. This is gonna blow your socks off. <laughs> Not <laughs> Did you know there has been a survey, a recent study, showed that women say on average 13,000 more words per day than men? <laughs> it doesn't surprise me and long may it continue. Absolutely. <laughs> Big up the wordy women. Definitely. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jo. Thank you. Thank you.